have the um, pointer set up? If not, we'll work without it. It's fine. Okay. Um, all right, First Timothy. We're in lesson number three of this uh, series, focusing on uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. And uh, let's go ahead and take a read just through those for a minute here. So uh, verse 12, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the salvation that he freely offers. Lord, we thank you for the chance to be here tonight and to, to be able to study your word. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit and help others learn and grow tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> gone through bullet point one, and sorry I don't have the outline for it, but that's, that's okay. Bullet point one talking about the pictures of grace, I think it was. Um, and the, we focused a lot on the Apostle Paul's before and after testimony. Who he was before, who he was after he met Jesus Christ. Each of us, likewise, has a, a before and after picture of our lives, too, right? Before we, know, before we knew Jesus Christ as Savior, we were one person. And after we know Jesus Christ, now we're a completely new man. And again, how much we're yielded to the Spirit of God there's there's some there's some things there that are going on that if you are more yielded to Christ you're becoming more like Christ in this life eventually when he returns we'll be we'll be made in the image of Christ at that time um, just at this point it's the choice really is ours how close are we to Christ in this life right now so point number two here the pattern of grace focuses on verses 15 and 16 and just a thought um, as we go through this point, these points here, focusing on verse 16, just something to think about is why did God, according to verse 16, extend mercy to someone like Paul? And, it, and we'll, we'll focus on what the Bible actually says, which is very important, not what we think it says, but simply to show forth all long suffering and as a pattern or an illustration of salvation. How do you get saved? What does it do? Who can be saved? All of these things. All right, so point A, patient mercy. Now this word here in, um, in verse 16 that we have here, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering. this word long-suffering, 
going to talk about that just for a little bit here. It's found, the underlying Greek word is found 14 times in the Bible, in the, Greek, in the New Testament. It's translated long-suffering 12 of those times. And lo- the word long-suffering should be very familiar to us, right? It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. So we have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, right? It's the fourth fruit of the f- fourth fruit of the spirit that is listed but it's also translated patience and i think that's not a that's not an accident patience and long suffering go hand in hand they're very much synonymous and often you'll find too that it's used in context in immediate context with another word which is related not necessarily in the underlying greek but in in the context of long suffering and patience but forbearance and to forbear so it's used in the context of that in Romans chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 4. There's also another related Greek word, which is, is just a different part of speech. Found in, uh, I believe, yeah, Acts chapter 26, verse 3. And it's translated patiently, so just the adverb form of patient. And in this point, we find Paul presenting his defense to Agrippa. He's going there, and he's again recounting his testimony of who he was before, who he is now after meeting Christ, and knowing Christ and being saved. So the patient mercy shown forth in the life of Saul of Tarsus, right? We spent a lot of time talking about the man Saul of Tarsus. And the man Saul of Tarsus is very different from the man you find called Saul immediately after. Right? His name... He's still referred to as Saul up until further into the book of Acts, only later becoming known as Paul, the apostle. But in in Acts chapter 26, if you want to turn over there, the patient mercy shown forth in in the life of Saul of Tarsus, Paul recounts to Agrippa his testimony here in Acts chapter 26. We won't read the whole chapter, but just some of the highlights of of the passage here. Starting in verse 4, Paul's recounting, My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem, known all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So everybody, he's saying here, everybody that knew me, I was the guy who followed after the highest form or the straightest form of Judaism, being a Pharisee. And everybody there would say he's, he's the Pharisee of a Pharisee. He was, he was seeking this zealously. Verse 9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So here he's zealous in his religion. We've talked about this a lot before already, but he's, he's zealous in his religion. He's doing things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. So this would be who the Jewish people would know Jesus as, right? They don't know him as Messiah. They would just say, this is Jesus from the town of Nazareth, the man. Not necessarily knowing him as Jesus the Messiah from heaven, Jesus the Christ the son of God. They thought him to be the son of Joseph, the son of fornication. We know better. 
He's the, the one, the only begotten Son. Verse 10, which thing I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. He's recounting, you know, I've, I'm zealous. This is what I was all about. I was all about my religion. The saints, if you talk to them, if you could talk to them, because some of them are dead, would tell you, yeah, he was pretty into it. He was, he was, he was all about his religion and, and, and making sure that he was suppressing this cultic sect of Christians uh, to, to, um, to further his religion, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Yeah, that guy right there. He's a follower of Jesus. He would be the one who comes up and testifies. He would be the the uh, the legal term. I'm not sure, but like the ringer that you you'd call up. He's like, yep, he's the he's the guy. He'd be the, the finger pointer. He's got a really big finger. Points to them all. And I punished them often every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. So he wasn't content with just locking them up. He's trying to get them to curse God themselves. And in weakness, many may have, may have blasphemed God for this. Now, are they condemned to hell for blaspheming God once they've trusted Jesus Christ to save as well? No, because you can't lose your salvation through that. But to the point of, of um, just pushing people to say negative things against God, against Jesus Christ and who he is, and being exceedingly mad against them, just full of rage toward them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. So this is the Apostle Paul. This is just another one of his testimony accounts here. And he goes on and he further tells, recounts his road to Damascus story and the encounter with the Lord Jesus. But God was patient and long-suffering with Saul, forbearing his wickedness until that one day on the road to Damascus. God's long-suffering with Paul did not stop on that day. So long-suffering doesn't just occur with God, between God and men, up until the point where you trust Jesus Christ as Savior. At that point, yes, you are a born-again child of God. can't be undone by anyone. But you're not perfect yet. You're not complete yet. You're not mature yet. So there's still a bit of long-suffering that the Lord needs to have or has with us at that point. Now as a born-again son of God, God would now direct Paul in love in the past that he should go in all long-suffering. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, doesn't come into you, into your soul, into your heart, and not do some changing. He's going to continue to direct you. And again, as I alluded to earlier, it's how much of you are you setting aside? Are you setting yourself up? and your desires aside, are you trusting that God has the best for you, has, has a plan for your life? Things to consider. Is it my will to be done, or is it the Lord's will to be done after I'm saved? Some, so, uh, a truly um, incomplete analogy that you could say between 
how God relates to a born-again Christian might be, and it's truly inadequate in its reference, but the way that a parent relates to their child. So I, I can tell you personally, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was all about me when I was single. It was half about me, or maybe less than half about me when I got married. When I have kids, you know, it's, it's a lot. You're pouring a lot of your, your energy into them. But the relationship between parent and child, there's the temptation. I know the kids, we, we homeschool the kids. And there's a temptation when they have problems with math problems. They have an issue with math or something else that you can help them with. They're completely flustered. They have no idea how to do it. They're just completely emotional. An emotional ball of goo at that point. And, um, you know, the, the easy thing to do is just, just come in and say, okay, yeah, you can look at the math problem. That's basic elementary math. And say, yeah, this is the answer. You could come in and you could take the, their pencil and write the answer on their paper. That doesn't really do anything for them, right? God could come into the life of a Christian and fix individual things immediately. Make us perfect right now. Take us home to heaven. But there's something here for us to do, right? There's that we're to grow closer to him in these days that he's given us. So we could go in, we could swoop in and take control. We could pick up the pen and write the answer on the page and look at 100% every time. But in this case, they don't learn from that. They learn, what they learn is that you will come in and write the answer on their page correctly. And the other thing to maybe contrast that with is, and maybe the same thing, is if you have that restraint, if you're long-suffering in dealing with your kids, if you're patient with them and helping them with their math problems or whatever issue that might be in their, their lives that they're trying to deal with, that they will, they will be able to learn from that and grow. Now, God can choose to make all of our problems go away if he wanted to. Allow us to have a wonderful life, all the rest of these things. But in the end, um, there would be a little exercise of faith at that point. How can we learn to trust in the Lord fully if our expectation is that he hands us everything? We see parallels in our society today where people just want a handout. They don't want help. They think help is a dollar bill. Help is more than that. Help is, is, is understanding and wisdom. And these things the Lord can provide to us from his word. But contrast this with maybe the, the long-suffering parent who's able to direct the child in what they should do. Well, have you considered this or this? Consider the word of, how God's word works in our hearts when we read it. Have you considered this? But what about this in his word and how that can speak to you on your, in your daily life? But contrast that with helicopter parents. Anybody know what a helicopter parent is? <laughs> right? They come in, they're in their helicopter, they hover around their child and make sure nothing ever happens to them. They put them in a nice little bubble and the children grow up and don't know how to live. They're always expecting someone to drop the food into their mouth. 
and they're not learning and growing themselves. Now, this analogy, I think, breaks down. The relationship between parent and child breaks down when you compare it to Christian, sorry, with God and a Christian. So God in Paul's life worked to grow Paul and each Christian and change them from the inside out. It's an inside out change. The parent-child analogy, so it breaks down as the child grows more and more independent of the parent. Right? We're raising our we're we're, we're raising children to basically uh, work ourselves out of a job as a parent. Right? You want to raise them to become a, a, a God-fearing, fine, upstanding citizen in our world. We're trying to work ourselves out of a job. Our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is to be one where we grow more and more dependent on Him as we recognize that there's less of me and more of Him, that I can't do these things without you being more and more dependent on him day by day. This is growth in the Christian life. Less of me and more of him. All right, question number 10 in your your books asks, what are some illustrations from scripture of God's long-suffering mercy? I think you think of some. Talk about some of the recently here on past Sunday nights, several months ago, I so. One being Jonah. God's long suffering with Jonah. Having him spend three nights in the whale's belly, in the fish's belly, and still working on him. Long suffering, being patient with him to come around and then fulfill the work that God had for him. You could say Noah and the people in the Antipodean time period. Noah preached to those people for 100 years, more than 100 years. They saw him building this big boat. What do you need a big boat for? There's no water around here. God was long-suffering with those people. Pharaoh in Egypt. God was long-suffering with him. Moses repeated his request to Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And more and more, brought more and more bigger plagues, but had had, uh, Pharaoh repented, God would have turned his wrath away, I believe, and wouldn't have had to suffer those terrible judgments that went on. And the salvation of Paul after years of persecuting the church being another example here that we've looked at. I find it interesting that at least the teacher's manual might come to this in a minute, but makes references to certain verses that are often Calvinistic proof texts. One of them is here. The interesting that I find interesting thing that I find is they weren't too overtly Calvinist um, in in the teacher's guide in this instance here. And even some of the more Calvinistic commentators on these verses weren't so much. Was, you know, sometimes they, they get it right. That's good. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
right? And in this case here, all means all. God desires that all men come to repentance, come to faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made provision for it through His Son, Jesus Christ, living a perfect life, dying on the cross and rising again, shedding His blood for the payment of the sins of the world. He is the propitiation for the sins of the world. All of the sins of all the people, everywhere, as the Word of God tells us. So question number 11 in your book. Pretty basic here, but what does this verse further reveal about the heart of God? God loves all people from all times, desires all of them to be with him in heaven. The sad reality is that most will reject that love. They will say, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm good enough to make it to heaven. Look at all these good things that I've done. I'm a member of such and such committee, so and so. I've given this much money to the church. My grandpa was a Baptist pastor. We've heard a lot of different things. Um, but that's not good enough. Paul deserved to experience God's just wrath against his sin, but God was patient with him. God's patient with each of us. God patiently withheld that judgment, and in doing so, God revealed his heart to us. Though sin makes, him, makes mankind an antagonistic enemy of God, and when I read through this here, uh, writing this down, I was thinking the the other thing too, antagonistic enemy of God. What is that? What comes to mind there? To me, it's that mankind in, it, in his sin, sinful nature and his sinful actions knows how to push God's buttons. Right? And how many times you can push God's buttons, God knows without you actually having that reset button hit or the... the uh, how should I say? I'll go back to my, my days of working in amusement parks. You hit the emergency stop button. Emergency stop, everything shuts down. And, and now uh, I equate that emergency stop, your sinful nature, your sin that's causing you to be on that road to hell is now stopped from a, from a, from a, uh, from a point of being saved. So that, that's no longer being racked up and counted to you as, as the reasons and the reasons why you'll be in hell. It's stopped. It's paid for at that point. The sin doesn't stop, right? The, have you ever been on a roller coaster or one of these water log flume rides? The water doesn't stop moving immediately. Things have to spin down a little bit. But that spinning down part is God working on us. To have that old nature of sin be suppressed and stopped and slowed down until it's completely gone when he calls his home. But Paul deserved to experience God's wrath and judgment and sin. Through, though sin makes mankind an antagonistic enemy of God, both pushing his buttons, God repeatedly stays his wrath, but this isn't going to last forever. There will come a day whether that be death or whether that be his coming, that you will have, you can't answer for your sin. 
I'm not sure that anybody's going to be able to speak a word. I imagine, you know, we have all this great technology of, of video cameras and be able to record terabytes and exabytes worth of data all over the place. God's got the biggest video camera and microphone system in the world that ever could be. He knows everything and has it all recorded in his books. I imagine that it will get played back. Remember this time, and that time, and that time over there, and this time that you rejected me? There won't be an excuse. There won't be room for but, but. There's not going to be any of that. For those that are trying to justify themselves by their good works. Or the ostrich of mentality. You stick your head in the sand of humanism or the world's wisdom and you ignore God around you. It doesn't make God go away just because you say he doesn't exist. All right, let's keep moving on here. Um, this is going by a lot slower than, well, faster than I thought it would. Point B, we'll try to get through this faster. Point B is the believing model, looking at verses 15 and 16 now. So the second reason God extended his mercy to Paul was to establish an object lesson, or an example, or a type. For those who would subsequently place their faith in Christ, God wanted people to understand why Christ came into the world. Paul became Christ's living illustration. 1 Timothy uh, 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So when I read this, when I read, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, I think of Jesus saying, verily, verily, many times in the gospel, truly, truly. We might say, let me have your undivided attention. Lend me your ear, maybe our forefathers would have written. Pay attention, as a, as a, uh, can't do the accent, as a television or a, a radio commentator would say, pay attention, this is the important part. And I'll say just listen up, this is the important part. That's what I think of here when he, when he writes down, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Now this is where I part with the teacher's guide here. They say there are three truths in this verse, and they say the first point, which I find bizarre how to describe it, is this salvation is worth accepting. I'm not sure that I see that in the first part of verse 15 here, but I will agree. Salvation through Jesus Christ is worth accepting. It's worth more than the whole world. But... Um, <clears throat> This is very true in that salvation saves the sinner from an eternity in hell without God to an eternity with God. But rather what I think Paul is trying is writing to Timothy here is as to why there's a need to set church doctrine in order. Right? One of the purposes of the book of 1 Timothy. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's not lose focus on running a church, having programs, having a building, having all these different things that come along with modern church today. What is our focus on? And I think Paul is pointing here, pay attention. This is what it's all about. It's all about Christ. It's all about him crucified and risen. And it's all about the gospel and propagating that to other people. Everything else is secondary. 
Remember, Timothy, the focus is on Christ and Him crucified, and that the church is responsible for proclaiming this message. He is the reason we are here. We're not here for potlucks. We're not here for socializing or whatever else we want to put in there. It's not a country club. It's not a place you go to meet meet up so you can go to golf afterwards. Am I pronouncing that properly? No. Golf. I can't pronounce golf. Um, <clears throat> but preaching the gospel is a work. Point two is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed on him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Right? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by, by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if... When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's the reason Jesus Christ came in for the world, to save us. The final point, this salvation can reach anyone. And when I see anyone, I mean everyone, all, everybody. This salvation that's offered is for everybody. Even somebody who considers themselves to be the chief of sinners was, I think, the point that Paul was making here. The Holy Spirit was making here. You know, here's the biggest, baddest sinner, persecutor of Christians, blasphemer of God, and God saved him and is using him, well, used him later to preserve Scripture, depend on Scripture, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To go around and plant churches and teach others. And we saw last week, what is Paul doing immediately after he's saved? He's out telling people about Christ. You basically can't get him to stop. The key point is that if Christ was able to save Paul, which he did, then the same offer of salvation is able to save any sinner who calls out in repentance toward God and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how sinful they have been. It's available to anybody, no matter how bad you think you are. I remember talking to a man once, he was a, an Iraq war veteran, who said that he had seen things and that he had done things that he was not proud of, and that there's no way that God could save him. It's a very prideful spirit. My heart goes out to him. Talked to another veteran of Vietnam War and I more or less listened to the story. But then again, if you, if you think that you're beyond saving, the point here is that God saved the chief of sinners, as Paul called them. Are you, are you, more, are you more, more bad, worse than, than the Apostle Paul, the, 
who he was, Saul of Tarsus. And I would just say, consider the other passages in the Bible where Paul tells us of his salvation story, his testimony. He recounts it many times throughout his epistles. It's found in the book of Acts many times, too. The question 12 here is we close down. How are believers witnessing efforts affected by a well-communicated testimony? So Paul spent a lot of time going around telling people about Christ, telling people what Christ had done for him, who he was before. We have evidence and many accounts of that. But how are a believer's witnessing efforts affected by a well-communicated testimony? How would you say Pastor? Right, is that's right. You can't argue against a changed life. I mean, if you if you have somebody who has been known to be involved involved in some sort of sin, their their sin was written on them, written on their face as plain as day, and that changes. There's a turning from it. Well, what's the reason for that turning from this? Well, I used to do this thing over here. Now I don't. Now I do these things. Well, yeah. Uh, we talk to a passive testimony, just your life that you live, but the active recount of your testimony, your, your personal story. No matter how much scripture you know or how much scripture you don't know, you always have your own personal testimony of salvation, where you were, who you were, where you are, and who you are now. Yeah, the unbeliever can get a better understanding of the gospel if they can see and hear how it's affected you you for the recounting of your testimony. And question 13, why is sharing your salvation testimony such a powerful witness, witnessing tool? Well, it authenticates, it's personal, right? It's, uh, it testifies of God's transforming power. Through your life, it makes the gospel personal. It authenticates the gospel. I'm, it, it, worked, it happened I got saved. I'm not going to say it worked for me, but uh, like it's a like it's a, a prescription that you take. Like, yeah, this this cured me of this disease. Well, in a sense, it does, but it's not so flippantly. That yes, it, it is. It's cured you of sin, the sin nature, the sin. Um, well, it's curing you of your sin nature, and it's cured you of your sin penalty. And. It's not something to be taken lightly. So, in closing here, I'll exhort you to listen up, pay attention. And we'll just go back through these verses again. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering. For a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him, life everlasting. We each have a story. We exhorted you in the past to each have an exhort a story. Go tell people. Your testimony is powerful. Especially to people who've gone you in the past. Doubly especially. So continue to pray for those opportunities to witness to people and talk to people. And, and, uh, you know, give God the glory in this. So that's the important part. It's not me anymore, but Christ. That's in me. Lift him up this week. All right, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time here tonight, Lord. We thank you for just our studies, the, the pattern of salvation, uh, our testimonies that each of us have, Lord. Help us to be a faithful witness of you to the lost world around us. Lord, I ask you that you just continue to look after us this week. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.